0: This is an ABC podcast. Newborns, adorable, squished up little things that don't
1: come with an instruction manual. So here are my top newborn tips and hacks that I have learnt along the way. Crying <laughs> is your baby's way of communicating. If
0: Having a baby trying- should be easy. It's a natural process and there's no shortage of advice out there. But what if it's not easy? What if having a baby coincides with a complete dissolution of the self, a crisis in which you can no longer function and where the fundamental question of who you are and how your mind and body relate to each other is up for grabs? Well, that's the question we're bringing this week to The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to the program.
1: After having my first child, I kind of immediately had this experience of a real bodily panic, a loss of appetite, you know, a sense of not being able to think clearly, like a sense of catastrophe. I had insomnia, you know, and at the time I was just trying to survive really. But as the months went on, I began to think about what had set off such acute panic and to kind of really understand how knotted up the physical was with the mental and what I was experiencing.
0: That's Nicola Redhouse. She's a Melbourne based writer who's recently come out with a compelling first person account of postnatal dissolution. It's titled Unlike the Heart, a memoir of brain and mind. And it traces not just the story of what happened to Nicola following the birth of each of her two children, but also a personal history of psychoanalysis, which had played a significant role in Nicola's life and still does today. Psychoanalysis and philosophy have had an uneasy relationship, but they both share a fundamental concern with the self and with the relationship between mental and physical states. This was certainly a fundamental concern for Nicola Redhouse in the crisis that she experienced, and we'll get to talking about that a little further on in the program. But by way of introduction, Unlike the Heart was written partly in response to a claim about psychoanalysis that you often hear, which is that it's nonsense, a pseudoscience. And what happened to Nicola did cause her to think seriously about its efficacy, but where does the pseudoscience claim come from?
1: I think it's stemming from the the kind of direct accusation that people who know anything about the philosophy of the sciences will know came from Karl Popper, who had once in fact been quite taken with psychoanalysis, but... Um, He then saw it as the perfect example to illustrate what was his emerging proposition about how to define something as scientific. Um, And he'd said basically that, you know, in the kind of the empirical domain, um, if you make a claim about the world can't be falsified, in other words, no future event can show it to be false, then it can't be scientific. And he used psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory to illustrate that. So it kind of became his example. And psychoanalytic theory in terms of, you know, no future event can ever, you know, tell us if a person really is, say, acting out because they harbour a wish to kill their father. You know, that's a good example. So that's where the kind of historical call for it being a pseudoscience came from. And I guess inevitably Freud set himself up for that because he, you know, it wasn't like he said, you know, I want to come up with a philosophy of the mind. He wanted to come up with a science of the mind. And, you know, he um, pretty soon himself could see that he wasn't going to be able to achieve that with the tools that he had in front of him. I think it was around the time that he wrote his paper on aphasia. And he started to hold a belief that the mind is dynamic, for starters, that it kind of exists in between the you know, it's, it's not localised. It you can't pinpoint a spot and say that's where language exists or that's where this exists. And so kind of in confronting that, he then was faced with saying, well, I don't think I actually can use empirical science, so I'm going to use clinical work. Um, so he sort of set himself up for accusations of pseudoscience and that's where we're at now.
0: But he did write towards the end of his life that he saw psychoanalysis as adhering to the scientific worldview. Do you agree with him on that?
1: I think it really depends, first of all, on what you mean by psychoanalysis. Like, are we talking about the method, the theory, which branch of psychoanalysis? Are we just talking about, you know, Freud's fundamental idea of the unconscious mind? You know, psychoanalysis has branched off in so many ways since Freud. But in terms of what I was interested in my book... Yeah, you know, if we're talking about Freud's theory of the mind, I think while we're not yet at a point of any conclusiveness, certainly for me, when I came across the work of the neuropsychoanalysts who are bringing kind of neuroscientists together with psychoanalytic theory, I was persuaded a great deal towards kind of accepting a mechanism of the mind where the unconscious, as Freud proposed it, kind of fits into an understanding of a particular idea of our affective neural mechanisms as they're put forward by one branch of neuroscientists, the affective neuroscientists. But basically this question kind of, I guess, became less and less important to me as I researched the book. Like I began to align myself more and more with people like the psychoanalyst Adam Phillips basically who said um, and I think I quote him somewhere in my book because he says something like you know no it's not a science but empirical criteria aren't basically the only criteria of value you know we don't do empirical research on poetry I think he gives the example of Mm. Wallace Stevens Um, so that's the position that I ended up at. Really,
0: One thing I was interested in in your book was you you note that even though psychoanalysis has done very well, of course, since it first Mm -hmm. appeared on the scene, uh, I didn't know this. You say that classical Freudian analysts today are very rarely encountered. Why is that?
1: I think that other branches of psychoanalytic theory have grown around Freud's ideas, and one of the biggest ones has been, you know, the feminist thinkers and analysts like Karen Horney and writers and philosophers um, like Irigare and Sisu, they've basically replaced that fellow-centric Freudian stuff with the maternal-child relationship, the primacy of the maternal-child relationship. So, the language that we use for his theories and and some of the theories themselves have changed. And I also think the other major thing is that the cost of classical psychoanalysis, which you know Freud had proposed should happen um five times a week, basically to allow for the best result, is prohibitive for most. Mm. And that does come back to an important conundrum for why it may need a scientific basis, uh, because evidence basis is essential to um, health insurance.
0: Philosophers, uh, particularly in the continental tradition, as you mentioned, you mentioned Erigarai and Ellen Sizou, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they have made a lot of use of his ideas. Mm-hmm. Just very broadly speaking, in what ways do you see psychoanalysis and philosophy intersecting?
1: Maybe psychoanalysis is, in some sense, like an individualized philosophy. It's asking not those broader questions about society or humans collectively, but what is it to live my best life? Again, I'm always drawing on Adam Phillips because I think he's so eloquent, but he says something like, what, what would it be to feel realer? I think I have got a quote in my book somewhere about him saying that you might find stuff out that makes you feel worse or it make you feel might make you feel better, but it might make your life better by being worse because... Even though you're suffering, you feel realer. So I guess that's how I see it as being a kind of individual
0: experience of philosophy. There seems to be an imperative in a lot of philosophy to sort of shine a light into the dark corners of human understanding and thus eliminate those dark corners. Whereas do you feel that psychoanalysis seems more accepting of the darkness in a sense? There's no attempt to resolve the unconscious or to solve it like a puzzle as, as a philosopher of a certain kind might try to do.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think there is a sort of idea that bringing it to light is in itself a resolution, you know, in the sense of it's not, uh, I mean, even though it was still referred to as the talking cure, the idea of it being a cure kind of more referred to those typical somatic things that people were experiencing in Freud's time, but broadly i'd say that psychoanalytic thinking is not looking to fix in the sense of it's it's looking to come to terms with reality but i suppose as part of that the idea of coming to terms with reality that is in itself supposed to bring some relief or resolution so you know for you know as a concrete example maybe coming to terms with the fact that your mother failed at something that you expected from her brings you an ability to have a more real relationship with her.
0: Yeah, I I take your point that it's difficult to talk about this in very general terms, but do you think that we can make a general point about language in psychoanalysis and the way in which language is something something concrete where you know a, a lot of, or perhaps even most analytic philosophy treats language as a, a sort of a window. You know, you look through language to get to the meaning beyond. Whereas, mm-hmm. am I right mm-hmm. in thinking for psychoanalysis, languages is, language is in in a sense has a kind of autonomy, if you like.
1: Mm, it's funny hearing you say that because it's almost like both sides of the coin exist. Exactly the opposite of what you're saying is true too in the sense that in... The psychoanalytic setting, the meaning of a word, is usually treated as entirely subjective. You know, what is your association? I mean, obviously there were quite set ideas. And in Freud's time, or at least with Freud's way of working, he was putting forward ideas of particular symbols having particular meanings. Obviously, you know, we know the classic ones like snakes and um, cigar. You know, the The, the old, cigar. That, the <laughs> cigar, yeah.
0: Which, which, which sometimes um, is just a cigar, but not always.
1: Which is under... Yes, um... But that seems to be quite different, certainly in my experience in practice, that language is treated very much as an individualized mechanism of symbols and that part of the task is to find out what that individual meaning is, so decode it in a very personal way.
0: I'm also interested in the ways in which psychoanalysis tries to unearth the myths that exist for the patient about who they are. And myths is a really interesting term to bring to this discussion because myths are often interpreted as things that aren't true. But they're Mm. also important origin stories and they work in a way Mm. that makes their truth or falsity kind of irrelevant. What do we mean then when we say that psychoanalysis is is a, a demythologizing process?
1: I think that psychoanalysis seeks to rid us of those false beliefs about ourselves. And that's where in the book I talk about myths in that sense. so The myth that our survival depends on our mother's happiness or the myth that our father's anger is because we never, you know, did X or Y. That's a kind of personal myth, a false belief about oneself. But the role of mythology, I think, in Freudian theory was basically to provide case studies for human patterns of relation as a way to understanding and unearthing our own myths. So I think there's a, there is quite a distinction. I don't see them as being the same thing.
0: Well, a myth, of course, is partly an interpretive tool I mean, in this latter sense that you're talking about. And you, you make a point in the book that some philosophers accept psychoanalysis by treating it as a form of hermeneutic, as an interpretive tool.
1: Yes. Yes, they do. I think I probably align myself with that perspective I think probably until we can verify particular, that you know, the very particular hypotheses that it's founded on kind of empirically, which is what the neuropsychoanalysts are looking at, it is exactly that. It's a field dedicated to kind of the theory and methodology of interpreting the individual mind. A lot of um, psychoanalysts basically are of the firm view that it has to remain in that field, um, that it has to remain in, in the field of hermeneutics, that basically to look to science is kind of impossible conceptually. Another argument that I find really interesting in that realm is that a lot a lot of psychoanalytic thinkers say that to take it out of the field of hermeneutics, to try and bring it into the field of science, kind of reinforces an unhelpful Western trend towards what they call biologism or kind of an idea of saying that real physicality is basically ought to be prioritized over kind of subjective psychological experience. And I think that I would agree with that.
0: Well you write in the book that nothing has been as transformative for you as good literature and mm. in its emphasis on myth and narrative do you mm. see psychoanalysis as a species of good literature
1: Yeah I mean I think what good literature is is totally subjective so I can't assume in having written that that everyone shares the same view as me but what I for me what good literature is basically it's it, it's kind of Linked to the uh, a text's ability to move me both consciously and unconsciously, and I always come back to when I because I teach um, creative writing, I love to teach my students about Vivian Gornick's idea of the situation and the story, um, which is this idea that basically all narratives work on two levels. So there's actually what we traditionally think of as story is this is going to be quite confusing, but situation is that basically the events that are happening. I um, mean, you know Mary chops down a tree and it falls on John. <laughs> wow, that's a weird example. But um, <laughs> but what is the uh, story is actually what is the meaning. So good literature for me works on those two levels. There's the thing happening, but also the meaning. And that for me is directly connected to psychoanalytic ideas and the way that you're working in psychoanalysis. So there's another great writer, Janet Malcolm, most people know who Janet Malcolm is, but she wrote in the Purloin Clinic, basically that life is lived on two levels, that it's lived both in action and in what is inferred. So it's that action and inferred or situation and story or the two levels of what's happening and the meaning that happens both in good literature and in the process of psychoanalysis. Um, the process of psychoanalysis is kind of in practice about unearthing the inferred and understanding one's own meaning. So in that way, it is almost a literary pursuit.
0: On RN, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Nicola Redhouse. She's the author of Unlike the Heart, a memoir of brain and mind. These new parents, like you perhaps are worrying a bit about the care of their baby well that's natural but remember there's no need to worry if you remember the things you learned in the hospital and follow the instructions your doctor gives you how to make baby comfortable let's talk about your life as you set it out in your book a certain episode in your life Anxiety and panic following the birth of your first child. What happened, and what sorts of questions did that experience raise for you about uh, about the questions of the self and the mind that we've been talking Mm. about? It actually happened to me after the
1: birth of both my children.
0: My focus in the book is
1: extensively on the period of time after my first because um, it, it dragged on for a lot longer, and I was, you know, it was my first child. I had no idea what was going on, so. Basically, after having my first child, I kind of immediately had this experience of a real, like what I've described as a bodily panic, a loss of appetite, you know, a sense of not being able to think clearly, like a sense of catastrophe. I had insomnia, you know, and at the time I was just trying to survive really. But as the months went on, I began to think about what had set off such acute panic and to kind of really understand how knotted up the physical was with the mental in what I was experiencing. So sleep deprivation, the pain that I was in from a difficult labor, um, the physical fact of having my baby outside of me rather than inside of me. They were emotional and physical experiences. But it was only after about six months that, and I went on to medication and I found that it helped a lot that I really sort of felt at sea about how to understand where in me this panic had originated from. You know, I was experiencing, um, I'd basically taken myself off to the GP and gotten a referral to a psychiatrist with the intent of going on to medication. And in that experience, I started to encounter the language and the kind of diagnostic certainty that comes around seeing a psychiatrist. You know, like he told me I had postnatal depression you know, as though it was in my body, I had it like, you know, like you have flu or whatever it is. Basically, what he was telling me was that a pill would work on my synapses, you know, it would actually work on my body. Um, And even the diagnostic statistic manual and the other tool of diagnosis, the ICD, it defines postnatal depression according to, you know, the maternal body. It's all about the pure perium, the, peri- the six weeks after giving birth um, as your body returns to normal. So if it was in my body in that way, I started to sort of think, well, how can talking help? That was the crisis that I faced.
0: Because you had grown up in a psychoanalytic environment and you, you had had years of psychoanalysis before your first child came along. Um, yeah, and I was still in it at the time. And you were still in it at the time. Yes, yes. Why did it fall short or why was it only of limited help to you in, in this crisis that you were in?
1: Um Yeah, I have to emphasize, I never felt it wasn't helping. It's just that it wasn't helping fast enough. Um, You know, it's an incredibly slow process coming to understand yourself through language and through kind of this deeply personal relationship. And my go-to, Adam Phillips, has a great way of describing what's happening between you and the analyst. He says, you know, you're basically trying to figure out what it is that's stopping you enjoying each other's company. Um, And that takes time. So, what was failing was that I needed more immediate relief because I had a, um, not just myself to look after, but a, a, you know, a new baby. So, it was kind of the immediacy of it. I needed something to allow me to just get on with the daily stuff of living um, in a healthier way.
0: Mm. And this is where a a scientific or a pharmacological approach Mm. was of some help. But I'm interested in the resistance that you had and, and still have to thinking of what was going on in terms of you know mental illness, right? Mm. And, and you had you know, you weren't eating, but you don't call this an eating disorder. Why mm. why don't you use these terms?
1: Mm.
0: I've thought about
1: it a lot post the publication of the book because in reviews or you know articles those words have been used and they they don't fail to. Give me a little jolt every time I see them, and I think what it is is that it's in those terms, which are diagnostic terms of the kind of psychiatric field, that I I see a kind of determinism that I want to resist. It's just as simple as that, you know. For me, a um, diagnosis is something that I associate with a condition that's less able to somehow be um, resolved or worked through.
0: But there mm. was help for you in a scientific approach to the problem, wasn't there?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean. There were two things going on with my desire to look scientifically at my emotional experience. The first was that I really began to understand how terribly desperate and lost a person feels in the midst of, you know, serious emotional crisis. And, you know, in other fields, in in medicine, we have pretty clear-cut evidence-based routes to take. And there's a whole body of published evidence around what the best course of action is. But with mental health and with neuroscience, there's still a great deal of unknown. You know, there certainly are clinical guidelines and, the you know, they're the recommendations that your GP will go to if you come to them with a, a mental health problem. But even those clinical guidelines are often recommending what has the most evidence base. And it's often as a result of a lack of evidence in another area. You know, for example, in kind of interpersonal talking therapy, we haven't figured out a way to study it scientifically. So does that necessarily mean... That it's the best course of action. But then at the same time, I am a pretty evidence based minded person myself. I would never sort of go off and have some sort of alternative therapy that has no evidence base. I'm quite opposed to that. So that's where I began to feel some sort of scientific basis would be helpful to understanding what course to take. Mm you know, there was also a very personal aspect, which is kind of a story that was running alongside this, which was not just that my sister had made a claim at one point, my sister being a clinical researcher who advocates for evidence-based science um, in the community. It wasn't just that she'd made this claim that psychoanalysis was a pseudoscience, but, you know, you've got to remember that our father's a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. So it was quite personal. And I think it played into a lot of the dynamics between us and the unresolved things that were going on about our feelings towards our father. And I wanted to, in some way, resolve this as well. I wanted to, you know, I was sort of thinking, is this about anger towards my father? Could I salvage his work? What was going on in the way that I related to him that drove me to ask these questions? So there was kind of two things happening at the same time which drove me wanting to look at the scientific stuff.
0: But when you are at this point where psychoanalysis wasn't working fast enough, mm. but mm-hmm. antidepressants certainly were. Did that leave you with it, with any sense that your problem was physiological, first and foremost?
1: No. And as you've acknowledged, it, it wasn't that psychoanalysis didn't help at all. It just didn't help fast enough. It was, in the meantime, giving me an understanding and a very good understanding of the deep kind of emotional meaning that becoming a mother had for me. Um, and for me personally, how that had ignited a very kind of serious and deep separation anxiety that, that I had that I wasn't so conscious of, as I say, just didn't help immediately enough. And whether antidepressants helped foremost for their biological mechanism or for their symbolic mechanism is something that remains a question for me. I go into quite a bit of detail in the book about what we don't know about the efficacy of um, or the mechanism behind um, antidepressants for anxiety, how unclear that is and how hotly debated it is in the field. So with I think without doubt, They had a significant symbolic effect for me in being, you know, that I was in a place where I was really struggling with the sense that I was helpless and that nothing could help me, and that part of my panic was about feeling like a child again myself and not knowing where to turn. And the antidepressants represented a moment where I sought out something, found it for myself, took myself to the GP, got a referral, saw the psychiatrist, and got some agency and in the context of struggling with the sense that I was helpless that was immensely you know symbolically helpful
0: mm-hmm. given that psychoanalysis is an inquiry into the nature of the self sometimes a, a rather anguished inquiry if you're mm-hmm. sort of driven to psychoanalysis by problems that you have mm. with trying to understand the self and of course this is something that a lot of ph- uh, philosophy concerns itself with as well mm. but i wonder if you're attracted at all to an approach like the one, for example, we see in Buddhism where the self doesn't really exist. The self has an illusory nature and the um, the challenge, the practice, if you like, is, to, is just to realise that.
1: So I don't really know much about Buddhism other than that I think the idea of there being no self is related to an idea of there being kind of no unified controlling identity. I suppose that seems to me... That idea of reminding yourself of that, I guess, that reminds me of a kind of kind of cognitive behavioural approach of you know having a conscious thought that you hold in your mind um, to release yourself from your feelings. And I'm sure that is helpful in in some way. I mean, to some extent, that's something that I've actually found helpful with the more concrete ideas that I can draw together from psychoanalysis so you know an idea say that um, I have a mythology of separation equaling death that's a thought that I can hold in my mind that then in that moment helps me in the way that CBD might but whether that relates to who I am at that moment or the Buddhist idea of the self I'm not sure. I do think there's a um, neuroscientist um, Bruce Hood who's written a really fabulous book called The Self Illusion which covers a lot of stuff but there was an idea that I was quite drawn to in that where he said basically that, I mean, the title kind of gives it away, the self-illusion, but he said that we're constantly integrating the here and now into our past. So in that, in this sense, our self is kind of malleable. And for me, that's a really hopeful idea. And that's an idea of self that I quite like because it connects with, for me with what I see as the aim of psychoanalysis, which is to sort of reconfigure our sense of self according to a new kind of authentic reality.
0: But where would you say you are now, maybe with that in mind? I mean, do you feel you've come through, you've come out the end of something with a perspective on the nature of the self that's different? Or is it more, well, I was, you know, I had this terrible experience and now I've come through it and, you know, I just carry on?
1: I don't see it as left behind. I see it as still part of the person sitting here right now answering your questions, if that if that makes sense. Um, so I guess in that way it is that kind of idea of, constantly integrating the past into the present I do have a really hopeful view of mental experience and mental health that that is to say that the present can always offer something to find a new way or a kind of new a new new reality for ourselves yeah
0: Nicola, at the end of all this, I just want to quote something that you mentioned in your book, which is that the talking cure is not for everybody. I was quite surprised at that. Why is that? And then who is it not for?
1: I don't think that when I say the talking cure, I'm talking about what I would call psychodynamic therapy, which is any kind of therapy that draws on psychoanalytic ideas in terms of unearthing unconscious meaning. And what I'm saying is I don't think it would be basically a viable option for a person who's not able to think symbolically or to use language metaphorically. You know, you really need to be able to be the kind of person who's not entirely concrete, who can kind of understand and accept that one thing might represent another. And that inability to think like that might just be because a person you know, intrinsically can't think that way or maybe because they've become impaired by their mental suffering or that they're actually not able to think in a receptive way you know people use the term psychologically minded that's a simple way to put it but it's really about not being able to think abstractly and take that in in a useful way and i also think that you know as my personal experience demonstrates in an urgent crisis it's not likely to be suitable on its own
0: Mm, not a quick fix but tailor-made for writers such as yourself tailor-made for
1: writers absolutely
0: (laughs) well you've written a wonderful book it's unlike the heart a memoir of brain and mind and uh, nicola redhouse it's been wonderful to talk to you thanks very much for coming on the program thank
1: you so much for having me it has been wonderful
0: And you can find publication details of Unlike the Heart on our website. That's the Philosopher's Zone via the RN homepage or the ABC Listen app. Nicola Redhouse also appeared earlier this year on RN's All in the Mind program, and we'll be putting a link to that on the website as well. And leave us a comment while you're there. I got an email from a listener recently who said that he thought the comment section was just as interesting as the program itself. So there you go. Jump on in. Thanks this week to producer Diane Dean. I'm David Rutledge and thank you for your company. See you next time.